This morning we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5. So if you do have your Bibles and you want to follow along, we're going to look at Romans 5, 12 through 15. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that you are our God and that we are united to you in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are the most blessed people. We are those who've been brought from death to life. We praise you for this, O Lord. I pray, O God, this morning that you would mercifully deal with all of us. That you would help us to see and to understand and to know the goodness. The goodness of life in Christ. The goodness of this message that we have and we proclaim. For we ask this in Jesus. Amen. Well, hopefully, you've been able to see as we've started this whole series on becoming a church on mission, that as we started from the beginning, the whole thing that lays a foundation for this is that God, our God is a God on mission. He's been on mission from the very beginning, and he puts us on mission from the very onset. He's a God of mission. He's got plan. He's got, this, is what we're, this is where we're headed, and this is what I want you to do. And as we noted throughout, uh, it isn't uncommon. In fact, it's very common, isn't it, for God's people to get off mission. And that's what we see the story of throughout. Like God calls his people to hear, and his people just nosedive constantly. And they get off mission. And, and the primary reason for this, as we looked, especially in Judges, if you recall, was what? The fact that right here in, in your heart, in you and in me, we have a tendency to wander from God and go serve idols. Go look from other things and people for, for the things that only God can give. We look for them, to, we serve them, and we look for the things and people to give us Love, joy, peace, purpose, meaning, fulfillment. And we keep going after these strange gods. And we keep wandering towards them. And we, ter- we do not go to God. So in God and in Him is all things, are all things. So whether it's, it doesn't matter what it is, even, even your life and your breath is in Him. And yet we have a tendency to go looking in other places, don't we? Isn't this what we do? We go looking in other places to receive what only God can give. It's, it's hard for us. Even if you've walked with God for a long time, your tendency is not to turn to God to get what you need, but to turn to other people and things to get what you need. And in that is idolatry. And in that exposes our hearts. That's a fundamental problem. We also looked at how the motive for this mission is love from top to bottom. And there's no way you or I are ever going to go and get on mission unless we know the love of God. If you, you have to know his love and you have to be filled with his love and from that love you want to what? Love. It's the primary motive from beginning to end is his love. And then we looked at Jesus 
And we followed his life for a bit. We spent several weeks looking at how was it that Jesus, how did God reveal to us what it means even to go on mission? Because there's only one perfect man. There's only one person who did it perfectly. There's only one person who who actually, a son, who obeyed the Father and did what the Father called him to do, and that was Jesus. And when we look at Jesus and he goes on mission, one of the things we noted, we noted several things, but there's the first thing he goes out to do is minister to the needs of the people. And then he's in conversation with them and he makes proclamation about the kingdom of God. And he's observing their response, right? That's what we talked about. How Jesus observes where his father's at work. And then those who responded to him, he discipled them. And so I want us to, to, if you want to like take something away and it's kind of helpful to, to simplify. Okay. How do I get my head around this? Think of it this way. If we, if we minister, observe, and invite, as we talked about, we are going out on a mission as Jesus did. So think of these three words. Minister, observe, and invite. And what do we, we talked about that. Like you go minister to the needs of the people. You observe how they're responding and where is God at work. And to those whom God is responding, we invite. What do we invite them to? We invite them to things where they can hear a clear and powerful presentation of the gospel. So if that's helpful in your mind to think, okay, what does it mean to get on mission as we follow Jesus? Minister, observe, and invite. Minister to the needs of the people, observe their response, invite those who are responding. I think hopefully that helps in your mind. It, it, it does for me anyways. I need to simplify things to the point of like, okay, can you bring this all down to just like three words? So think of it that way. And then we, we looked at, after that, we looked at how Jesus goes through and then dis, begins to disciple. And, and there it's important to understand that he focuses on one, following People need to figure, you're going to disciple someone, they need a model. They need to see it lived out. And then the three things that he really focused on teaching was who God is, who they are, and how this world works. And we looked at that. But you know what's really central to this mission? And then if we, if we get away from the centerpiece, we can get caught up in even all kinds of outreach missional activity and forget the center. Because it's not uncommon for us to drift from the center. And here is the center. At the center of our mission is a message. Another way of putting it, at the center of our mission is a, a proclamation about, there's, there's actually a good news. There's something that happened in history that's really good news. Finished, complete, and it's amazing. And, and what, Part of our being on mission is declaring to this world, letting the world know this incredible news. You know, something about news, when you grab your newspaper this morning, well, nobody grabs a newspaper this morning. Well, few people do. You grab your phone or whatever, you, however you get your news, right? Is the thing about news is it's something that's happened, it's a past event that they're just simply sharing, declaring. This is what, this is what happened. And with good news, it actually has good implications upon you. And at the center of who we are and what it is we're proclaiming is really good news. And it's good news for every single person on this planet. This is a declaration. This is to the world, announcement to the world, to the world. We have some phenomenal news. 
Incredible. And you know what? I need to hear this news and be reminded of it, even though I've, I've heard it a lot, often. I can't get away from this news. You know, have you ever been battle-weary in a week? I don't know what this week was like for you, but perhaps you're battle-weary. Perhaps you've hit, had some hits and you felt it. Perhaps you've encountered strains and concerns and, and, and all kinds of issues in, in the home and the workplace and in the people, places around you. And what you need is good news. What you need to be reminded of is good news. The good news needs to be proclaimed. I know myself, I love to hear it. Declare to me this good news. Let me remind me of the message that's at the center of all we do, and I love to hear it. My soul rejoices in it. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We are going to look at the centerpiece of the message, the thing that, upon which our mission hinges. This is what we're declaring to the world, and this is what took place some 2,000 plus years ago. We're going to look at a section in Romans, Romans chapter 5. And at exactly why is this such good news? In Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, Paul uses several parallelisms. Now, when I use the word parallelisms, I, you may or may not know what that means, but when you're paralleling something, you, ha, you, you know, another way of saying is he's juxtaposing. Maybe you're not familiar with that, but he's, he's taking, what, what he's doing, he's, throughout the section, he's taking Adam, who is the, the first Adam whom we're all born into, and he's comparing him to Jesus, the second Adam. We've got, so on one level, we got the Adam, and he makes a declaration, a statement about this Adam, and then he makes a declaration and statement about Jesus in a comparative manner, a contrasting manner, a ju- juxtaposing the two. And it's, it's effective for you when you look at it and you say, this is what came through Adam, this is what came through Jesus. And he's making several statements in this section about these two heads of humanity. Meaning, the, through and in these two people, these amazing things happen. Amazingly bad in Adam, and amazingly good in Jesus. Just to quickly see how these parallelisms work. If, you, if you're actually in Romans 5 and you're looking there, if you start at verse 12, you will see, as we go through this, how this works itself out. The first parallelism parallelism we see is in verses 12 through 15. There it says that sin and death came through one man, and it spread, this death spread to all humanity. But then, in verse 15, through another man, righteousness and life came, spreading life to the many. So see how they parallel this, through this one man, death comes to the many, and through this new man, Jesus, life is spread to the many. And then in verse 16, we see that condemnation, condemnation came through the one man's trespass. Whereas justification came to many trespassers through one man's obedience. Then in 17, we discover that if by one, one's offense, death reigned, much more by one's righteousness will life reign. Verse 18 says that through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. Yet through one man's righteous act, 
justification came to all men, all, all who believe. In verse 19, Paul says, By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, but then by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And so this is what he does in this section. He's contrasting and paralleling first Adam with the second Adam. All that came through the first and all that comes through the second. But so Paul is pounding home an idea. But the reason why he does this is he really wants you to understand something. He wants you to get the position and the state and everything that came to you in Adam. He wants you to know this. And on the other hand, he wants you to know everything that comes to you in Jesus. And through the one man, it's all works-oriented. And in the other man, it's all grace-oriented. You get what you deserve in Adam. You don't get what you deserve in Jesus. Justice, grace. So I want to dive in, actually, in verses 12 through 15 and just unpack it a little bit because you, what's really important are, are these words that are spoken because when, you, when I just go over it in summary form like that, you think, like, oh, okay. But when you really understand and, and, and get a hold of what he's doing here, it starts to come alive and you realize this is good news. This is unbelievable. So let us... Uh, spend the remainder of our time just looking in and diving into this first section, verses 12 through 15. Romans 5, 12 through 14 shows us that death reigns through the sin of Adam. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So here's what he's saying. Sin comes into the world through Adam. That's a no-brainer. We all probably got that, you know, as soon as you are in the Christian faith for not very long, you learn about Adam and you learn about his sin, and then you you realize, okay, this is where sin came into the world. And with sin, though, came death. And here's a this is why this death is is a significant component to this passage. Because there was no law, think of it this way, there was no law after Adam. Adam was given a law, and Adam transgressed, right? Adam's put outside of the garden, separate from God, and Adam fell into death, a state of death. Now here, after that, did anybody after Adam all the way to Moses, were they giving, given any laws that they need to obey? Nowhere. You can't find anywhere. This is what he's making his point. You don't, you don't find any laws given. So, but he says, even though they did not transgress like their father Adam did, because Adam was given a law that he transgressed, they weren't given a law, so they didn't transgress. Even still, they were sinners, and they were in a state of death. And this is what he says in verse 14. Death reigned. It reigned. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even before the law. Even before there's... So you can't accuse them of actual transgression, where there's no law to break. But they're still... But fundamentally, in their hearts, they're sinners. If God says, if I would have given them a law, they would have transgressed it. Immediately. 
Because as soon as I tell them don't, they do. That's their hearts. But nevertheless, what reigned was death. Now, here's this is important to understand. What does he mean when he says death reigned? Now, this is very important to understand. Because we have to grasp this word to really understand what even life means, what Christ did. We have to know the state of our, our own souls. Death is a state that must be taken care of or there is no hope for this world. There's no hope for your neighbor. There's no hope for your family members. There's no hope for your coworkers. There's no hope. Death. And we have to understand this death because it is, it is the significant issue that must be dealt with. Paul is using death here as, and I've mentioned this before in past sermons because sometimes when you hear of this idea of death, we think of what? The separation of body and soul. When your soul leaves your body, we call that death, and rightly so. It's a separation of the two things that were united together by God, and then when that happens, you go into the the dirt, right? Your body does. But listen to what God said in Genesis 2.17. He says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you hear that? In the day you eat of it, what did God say? You will surely die. So when Adam ate of the fruit that day, he died. So we might ask, well, what do you mean he died? I didn't see his body and soul separate. Yeah, you didn't, but one thing you don't see separate, but that was separated, was his relationship with God. So Adam and God were in union and communion like this. He was so tight with God, he was in, he was in relationship with him like he is with his own soul. And so what happens in the moment he eats of it, that's good. <laughs> he died. What died? His life with God died. Adam was in union and communion with God, and he was in the garden in God's presence. And guess what? Even physically, God took him and put him outside the garden. He was separated from God. He experienced a death in his soul. He was made, he was made by God to be in union and communion with him. And you rip that union and communion away, and guess what you have? Death. So every single person born of Adam from that day forward is born in a state of death. And this is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, where he talks about you who were dead, you Ephesians, you, hey, Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead? What do you mean? I walked around, I breathed, I ate, I was dead. Yeah, you were dead. Dead, dead. And you were under this reign of death. This is a, this is the state that every single person you know in the world and everyone around you is born into this state of death. Born separated from God who is life. And this is why we become nasty sinners. This is important to see the connection. When a person's in a state of death, they become a nasty sinner. And you don't want to know why? Because now there's a cavernous hole in their soul that lusts and longs to be fulfilled. And it's often we attempt to fill it through filling of fleshly desires and passions. 
Because when our souls long for love, they long for peace, they long for connection, they long for fulfillment, they long for purpose, they long for meaning, they long, there's a longing. Guess what you want to do? You want to fill it. How about you? When you're hungry, what do you want to do? Eat. Have you ever been really hungry? You really want to eat. The hungrier you are, the more you want to eat. The hungrier you get, the, the more damage you will do to get food. You get, you can get to the point where you, you begin to get, you get past agitated. Now you're ready to rob the grocery store. Hunger, driven by hunger, a desire within you to be satisfied. Blaise Pascal put it this way. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in a man true happiness, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there to help. This infinite abyss can be filled only with the infinite and immutable object, in other words, God himself. And so we go about our whole lives trying to find ways to fill that abyss in our souls. And in the process, we continually sin against God and our neighbor because we're selfishly hungry. There's a hunger in us. Do you know... Do you want to know what is going on in the soul of every unbeliever that you know? Every co-worker, every family member, everyone you, you are connected to in the world around you. Do you want to know what's going on in here? There's an empty cavernous hole. They're, they are in a state of death. Yet, we see them operating and functioning in ways sometimes that are dece- it's deceptive. We'd say, Dean, that's death? Yeah, look around and watch how people are, are living and functioning. And you'll have everything from people who are like really badly addicted to something. Because that's what the soul does. You know, you can, you can deaden the pain. We've got plenty of painkillers and they're increasing all the time. They take the pain away. And while they're on, on that drug, they feel good but take them off and they're like, uh, 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 and they're hungry for it. This is what's, it's a soul problem. They're in a state of death. We've got, we, we, we go after pleasure. We go after painkillers. We go after distractions. Nowadays, you know, you can have any kind of distraction you can imagine. You don't have to think about your state for two seconds because you can have Facebook you can have Instagram, you can have Snapchat, you, you can have any other delight you want on YouTube, you can, you can binge watch on Netflix, you, you can do whatever you want because there's all kinds of opportunities for you to, one, on the one hand, distract yourself, on the other hand, get some kind of fulfillment from it. And this is why companies and marketers are going to have a heyday. They, they just, it makes it easy to market in this world because there's a cavernous hole in people's soul 
And they're filling it with all kinds of things. They're being distracted. There's painkillers. There's pleasures. And they chase after it all. And now this is the context that you have to understand. This is what you need to realize. That you actually, no matter how much your neighbor smiles and laughs and finds himself distracted or pleasurable, they have to go home at some point and the music stops. Put them in a dark, lonely place where all they have are their thoughts. And it's hellish. It's hellish. There's a cavernous whisper. Emptiness going on. Emptiness in their soul. And you realize the worst possible thing they could ever imagine is now, do you know what the second death is? Do you know what hell is? Hell is when all the pleasure and the painkillers are gone. All the distractions are gone. God completely. Now what happens is now you're completely and eternally separated from God. And all of his gifts, he goes, okay, those, those are mine. Take those back. And now you're completely and eternally separated from me. Now, if you've ever seen people writhing in pain and writhing in this, this state, you're seeing a person who's experiencing what hell is like. And when, like ultimate separation. God just separates you from himself, his goodness, his glory, his gifts, his everything. Now you've got a horrendous state. And that should really grip us. That should, you know, you know what? Here's the thing. You know, you know what the problem is in the world around you. It's a problem with this person's soul and the relationship to God. They were created and they were made to be in union and communion with God and they're not. And so now there's this deep, deep longing and desire that they need to be fulfilled and so they run after it. And you should be able to look at them and see the world and have compassion on them and you know, they need to be united in union and communion with God. If they could, if they knew, if they, if they knew union and communion with God, they could know life. And every single person here who's ever known death, deep death in their soul, and be and been united to God in Christ Jesus, will say, oh, let me tell you, Jesus came that you might have life and have it to the fullest. He came to save the world. And, and the work is done. It's complete. And this is the thing that we have to see. In Adam, it's done and complete. And in Jesus, it's done and complete. It's news. It happened. And this is where the good news really kicks in because that whole, what we just looked at, sets the context for what he shifts now to say in verse 15. Because death reigned through Adam. But folks, life, life reigns through Christ Jesus. Look at uh, what he says in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. You know, Paul has a way of complicating things. It's like these these sentences that, like, whoa. (laughs) He says a lot. This is like, boom. Loaded. Okay, spend the next five years figuring that out. But you know what? Even though he doesn't say the word life here, notice what he says. He says the free gift. Did you hear that in there? He says it twice there. And from 15 to 18, you know he says he uses the word free gift six times. 
It's important. He wants you to wake up to something. He doesn't say life here because he wants you to know he's emphasizing something. It's free. Absolutely free. And it's a gift. He's given it to you. It's done. It's wrapped. Done. Here. It's for you. And this, what is he giving? He's giving life. Jesus is giving himself and giving the life. He says, I, I came. Why? We know, right? That you might have life and have it to the fullest. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now that's good news to someone who's in a state of death. Jesus says, I came that you might have life. And remember in Ephesians chapter 2, you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made alive together with Christ. And here's what happens. If you look at chapter 5, verse 11, you go back in verse 11, just before this section, here's why we have life in Christ. Because remember when we talked about death, death is what? It's a separation, this tearing, right? Between us and God. Union, communion's over. So if we're to have life, what must happen? We must be reconciled. We must be brought back together. And look what Jesus does in verse 11 of chapter 5. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received what? Reconciliation. In Jesus, we're back. We're back. So when we know it was that our, our that death, death was our separation and from union and communion with God, and what Jesus comes to bring this, you know, he wants to emphasize, folks, this is a free gift. You don't do anything. You didn't do, you won't do, you don't do. This is not because, you know, if you think for a moment here that God receives you, accepts you because of anything you've ever done or not done, you don't know the gospel. That's not good news. It's not try harder. It's like, man, you've really messed up the law. You need to go back and try again. No, that's not good news. That stinks. Because I'll try again. I'm going to fail again. I, I, I'm getting to know me. Bad news. And one of the things that God has to help me to do, and that's why I'm, I'm even thankful for the law, he helps me to, to, to get to know myself. It's like, man, if I didn't bring this law, if I didn't constantly expose you, you are so self-righteous and so proud and so deceived, you would think that somehow you, you, you've earned this. That's what we're, that's our tendency, isn't it? Have you ever done good at something? It isn't long, you're just like, Banny Rooster, check it out. God's going, no, check this out. How about I I show you what true righteousness is? Look at it really good. And and, and the moment you go, you lower your head and say, oh, what was me? I'm I'm the worst dirtbag. It's like, glory. You are so right. But I've got good news for you. I've done it all. Here, free gift. What is it? Do you want to be as righteous as God himself? This is what Paul's trying to tell you in Romans 3. Do you want to be righteous? How righteous do you want to be? Do you want to be as righteous as God himself? 
Yeah, I do. Well, here's some good news. He is willing to give you his righteousness, his righteousness, free. Because it's, God says, I want you to get to know me and understand one thing. Every single thing you need, I want to give to you. What is it? Do you want my righteousness? It's yours free in Jesus. Do you want wisdom? It's yours free in Jesus. Do you want strength? It's yours free in Jesus. What is it? God wants you to know that like in everything, Lord, he wants you to become like David. You're my everything. You're my strength. You're my hope. You're my salvation. You're my righteousness. And I am righteous as you're righteous. And not because of anything I've ever done, but because of you and you alone. That's good news, isn't it? It's really good news. And so here's what we have to understand. God continually works at us to remind us and to expose us and to show us and to have you feel in your bodies even death. So that you would cry out, oh God, have mercy on me. Give me life. And he says, gladly, freely. And you know, when you repent, you turn to God and you look to him to give you what you need. And he gives it. Stop looking everywhere else. You know, and and the, the beauty of it all in here is this free gift is that it's received simply, and what Paul tries to pound the first four chapters in in Romans, by faith. It's done, it's complete, it's finished, it's theirs, and he's just holding it out like this, and he says, just take it. And by faith, we lay hold of it. it. It is a finished work. You want to be reconciled to God and in union and communion with Him once again and find, and find this death disappear and be filled with life? It's yours. In Jesus, He says it's yours. This reconciliation is yours. Righteousness? Yours. Justification? Yours. Adoption? Yours. It's free. It's right here. By faith, it's yours. Just lay hold of it. John Calvin said, and I love this quote in his Institutes, For what is more consonant with faith than to recognize that we are naked of all virtue in order to be clothed by God? That we are empty of all good, but to be filled by him. That we are slaves of sin to be freed by him. Blind to be illumined by him to take away from us all occasions for glorying that he alone may stand forth gloriously as we glory in him. When we say these things, our adversaries interrupt and complain that in this way we shall subvert some blind light of nature, imaginary preparations, free will, and works that merit eternal salvation. For they cannot, so these people who oppose him like this and opposing him in that day. He says, for they cannot bear that the whole praise and glory of all goodness, virtue, righteousness, and wisdom should rest with God. But we do not read of anyone being blamed 
for drinking too deeply of the fountain of living water, John 14. On the contrary, those who have been harshly rebuked who have dug are those who have dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water, Jeremiah 2.13, end quote. What Calvin is saying is this, what God said in Isaiah 55. Hear this, people. Hear this. Good news right here. Come. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters of living Come to the waters of life. And you who have no money, you're broke? Beauty, come buy and eat. Yes, come. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. For why do you spend money on what is not bread? Why are you doing this? Why do you remain in your state of death and go after these broken cisterns? Why? When I'm offering you these amazing things, why do you spend your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. That's God saying that to you right now. Isaiah 55. This is the banquet feast that God offers to the world. God didn't, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He knows their problem. He looks around, he has compassion on them. Do you know and understand the problem that around you, all around you, is these, they're under the reign of death. They don't know the life of Christ. There's a cavernous hole in their soul and they're sucking. They're desiring to be fulfilled and they're running to all kinds of things and they're all the wrong things no matter what it is. All of it. You know that. That is their fundamental problem. Have compassion on them and understand them. If you've ever had this cavernous feeling in your own soul, if you've ever been, you know, gripped with this death and went after the things, these broken cisterns and things that only feed death, you know what it's like. You know what it's like to be trapped and ensnared. You know what it's like to have longing in your soul. And I hope that you know what it's like to have the free gift of life. You know what it's like to lay hold of Jesus, the fountain of living water. This is a free offer, free gift of life. It's done. He said, I've I've, I've completed it. I finished everything you need for life. What is it you need and what? I have it all. Jesus, the declaration is come. Come. You who are weary, come. You who are broke, come. You who are downright despicably poor, come. You who are filthy, wicked sinners, come. Come. And when we turn to him and we turn to God with our whole hearts, God, he just, and I'll tell you, every single person in this room knows that for a fact who's ever done it. Who's ever turned to God. Say, God, help. That's what he loves to hear. 
you realize that we, God has given us a possession that's beyond comprehension. We possess the truth and the knowledge of life. Do you realize that you possess the answer for every unbelieving neighbor, coworker, person around you? You know the fountain of living water. You know what they need. And sometimes we think, well, they don't want to hear about it. Yeah, they don't want to hear some guy preaching at them. But if you could ever understand their position, I have, I've had several and plenty conversations with people and drawing people out and asking them questions, and every unbeliever I've ever met, if no one's looking, will tell you there's a big hole. There's a big hole. It's not complicated. You knew the one. You know the one who's come to give them life. It's a done, finished fact that they can receive. And you say, you know, I, I know the one. I know the one who can deliver you from this death. He delivered me from that exact same death. He continually continues to deliver me because you know what's something else? I have a tendency to wander back to this stupid graveyard. And I need him once again. Man, I wandered back to that graveyard this week. Digging up bones. Thinking maybe this week I'd find something juicy. Nothing. When I go to God and, and you know, and then I'm and then I'm ashamed. I'm dirty and ashamed to turn to God. I'd run and hide. Because I don't think he's, he doesn't want me. Right? You ever thought that? He doesn't want me. Why would he want me? I'm a dirt bag. He loves dirt bags. Here's the thing, I, I know that um, if, we, if we understood the goodness of the news that we possess, if we understood the centrality of this message, it doesn't take much, and you, you want to get on mission. You, <laughs> you want everybody to <clears throat> You want everybody to know. You want them all to know. How could you not want them to know? How could you not want them to know the greatest news that the world has ever heard? And I don't think that the problem we usually have is that we're not living in the news. We're, we're, we're not experiencing the goodness of the gospel. We ourselves are guilty of hanging out in the graveyard. And that's why when you're called, you're called to give up your idols. What are the idols of your heart? When you're called, this is no sacrifice, folks. <laughs> this is no sacrifice. You're coming to receive by trashing and throwing down those idols that are in your heart, the things that you're going after and looking to, people, relationships, friends, family, things, your job, your work, promotions, money, whatever it is. 
Those things are dung, and I hope you can consider them dung in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus. But I'll tell you, you'll never know the love of God. You'll never know this life that comes from Jesus as long as in this other hand you have idols. If you're holding on to anything, no matter what it is, and you're trying to say, you're holding on to it, say, Jesus, would you give me this life? Say, no. No. You got to lay these down. You come to me like this. Broken, empty, and you will be filled to overflowing. Nobody ever who comes to Jesus with their idols in one hand and an empty hand here ever finds this life. You got to take those idols years, and I'm telling you, idols accumulate quick. You might have accumulated them this week. You got to take them and say, both hands, God, everything. I'm all in, right? All in. Everything I have, my life, my children, my home, my fine, everything, oh, God is yours. And when we do that, we know and receive life and life to the fullest. And then we get on mission and we have one message to tell. Christ Jesus has come that you might have life. Amen. Father, we are so thankful and grateful. for all that you've done for us, all that you've given us. And it's all in Christ Jesus. We have life. We have been reunited to you, reconciled to you. Lord, we are righteous in your sight. We are fully righteous as you are, holy and without blame, reconciled to you, brought into the fellowship of the Trinity. Oh Lord, help us to help us to throw off our idols, throw off these broken cisterns, throw off all these things that hinder, and come to you with both hands wide open to receive the glorious goodness of the gospel. For we pray this in Jesus. Amen.